This is the Storyline Podcast, produced by The Day in New London, Connecticut. And I'm Carlos Virgen, the host. They've been uh, ramping up. They've been on a hiring spree um, for a little while now uh, in anticipation of a lot of work that they've gotten. This week, we talk about Electric Boat's ramp up and its workforce. There are 37 individual properties that were part of the area that I'm writing about that this development... Vacant properties in a neighborhood in Montville. I would just urge people to try to expose yourself to the other views and... And And the breakdown of civil discourse in the U.S. First, we've got an update on the story that the day's Judy Benson broke about the wastewater spill into the Thames River from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy. The day submitted a Freedom of Information request for documents related to the work from 1997 that led to the spill over 20 years. According to the Coast Guard Facilities Design and Construction Center in Norfolk, Virginia, such documents are routinely destroyed six to seven years after the final payment is made to the contractor. So the identity of the contractor that botched the work at the Academy's Roland Hall remains unknown. The breakdown of civil discourse was the subject of a recent Day editorial. Paul Schwanier, Day editorial page editor, stopped by to talk. Let's talk about the editorial from earlier in the week uh, that you titled uh, Free Exchange of Ideas Under Attack, in which I think the argument is made that the capacity for civil discourse seems to have disappeared in in the country. Um, How have we gotten to this point? Well, you know, a little background, it was sort of a confluence of a couple of events that uh, uh, we thought about writing this editorial, the day providing this editorial. Uh, We had on the the night of the uh, correspondence, the press correspondence dinner in Washington, uh, that presidents have traditionally appeared at, uh, that uh, President Trump chose to, uh, the first president in a very long time. I think the last one was Reagan, and it was after an assassination attempt, so he certainly had a good explanation. Uh, the first president to uh, say no, he wasn't going to attend the uh, press correspondence dinner, and instead uh, he had a rally in front of his supporters in Pennsylvania, uh, where he, he basically characterized the, the press at the, as the enemy and, and uh, not to be believed what, what they're writing. And so we, we saw that one event and that, you know, the correspondence dinner, you can uh, critique it certainly for a lot of reasons. It's a little too much a celebrity event in my mind. But it, it's a chance for the president to recognize the press has a role. Uh, it's an adversary role. They're going to be critical of the president. That's just the way it works. And the president can get a few digs in. Kind of the other end of the spectrum, there was an appearance uh, projected by Ann Coulter. She was supposed to appear at Berkeley University. And there were protests against that. And we've seen this before uh, to the point that uh, the, the speech was canceled. And the, this by supposedly anti-fascist group, who basically classified anyone uh, who doesn't agree with their positions as, as fascist. So we... We, you know, we had these two ends, so we're, we saw this sort of as a, uh, evidence of a, a deeper symptom that we don't seem to have the uh, level of a discussion uh, without it turning acrimonious that, that we 
we once had in this country, and that was sort of the background of, of why we wrote the editorial. It seems to be that that because of the endless amounts of 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 access to information, that it's very easy for people to find the points of view that reinforce their own belief system, and that it's easy to create this filter bubble around yourself on Facebook, on Twitter. You know, exactly, and there's a certain irony. I mean, we have more means of communication than ever before, more access to information at our fingertips to really explore information from all angles. And I think I think the expectation might have been that people would be much more informed, they'd be able to make better decisions because there was so much information, they didn't have to uh, depend on any single source. And as I said somewhat ironically, it seems like it's turned out the other way in that uh, people uh, often uh, tend to return to information that already reinforces their point of view, be it, be it on the left or right. Columbia Journalism Review, they took a look at this. Uh, they tend to have found that this propensity is more intent, intense on the right hand, on, uh, right hand of the spectrum than it is on the liberal side, that the conservatives are even more likely to go to the Breitbart's uh, and the Fox News, and 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 not and disregard uh, other sources of information. Uh, you see that on the left as well, but they found it wasn't uh, quite as pronounced. What I also found is, uh, in having done this for a very long time, the the degree of anger has changed a lot. It used to be, you know, I I love the give and take and the back and forth of a of a good debate and a discussion on my pages. I have commentaries from left, right, and center, and and uh, but I, I try to n not make it personal. Uh, we have different views and opinions on how best to, to make this a great country. But what I found in more recent years is uh, people getting very angry with me. I know I get I'll get phone calls or something that you know almost wanting to pick a fight because uh, we have a different position than they hold, and I would like to have a good conversation with them, and I try to do that anyway. So I think we've, we've seen a, an increase in, in the anger, and in, in our country is all about debating issues, but at the end of the day, we're all Americans. We all have the best interests of the nation uh, at hand, um, and we just have different ideas of the best way to, to move the nation forward. All right, you mentioned our commenting system, and sometimes uh, depending on the story, it's a microcosm of, of this, uh, that you're talking about, the, the inability to have a rational discussion. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. Uh, some, sometimes they start going back and forth, raising legitimate points back and forth. Maybe it's a little sort of uh, nasty way they present it more than, than necessary. Uh, but yeah, we've actually had some pretty good discussions. And, you know, I welcome that. Uh, and that's could be a topic for another podcast is discuss the whole uh, way newspapers and different publications are handling right. uh, handling uh, those reader comments. I remember um, uh, we used to have a commenter, and he passed away a few years ago. David Irons was, was the name, and he used his, unlike most commenters, he actually used his name. And he was conservative, but he would also always be very respectful, and whether and no matter who was getting sort of unnecessarily negative, uh, he would point that out. And, and just his position being in there uh, tended to keep it uh, more at a higher level. Uh, and it's great to have those uh, kind of people. And it was interesting, Mr. Irons, 
passed away, how we first all learned about it. I wrote some editorial, which I now forget what it was about, but uh, Mrs. Irons, using his David Irons uh, sign-on, said that, uh, uh, you know, he had passed away. Oh, wow. And uh, and like I said, I don't remember what the editorial was about, but the next 50 comments were about uh, missing Mr. Irons, and right. they kind of took over the discussion. It was sort yeah. of a, an interesting uh, uh, phenomenon. So I... I think if we, if you can get that person or people to begin to, you know, introduce a more, you know, let's keep this uh, polite, let's keep this civil, right. and have a discussion of ideas and not personality, yeah. it can be a useful tool. What role do you think that news organizations, uh, the day, for instance, in, in, in the New London area, what, what role do you think we, we should play uh, to facilitate some of this um, discussion, this kind of uh, rational discussion that we're talking about? You know, well, you know what newspapers have always done is uh, letters to the editor. We provide, you know, and, and our newspaper remains. We get many letters to the editor. People, you know, have a chance to be on the pages, expressing their point of view in in, in their own words. Uh, we, uh, I think, we'll be looking at. We've provided political debates, and we've tried to uh, involve the public. Uh, sometimes we take them out to school auditoriums. That's a chance for people to submit their questions and. And we've done it uh, on digitally on the day.com. And so I think we're going to try to step up our efforts to hear the questions they want to ask. So it's not just our questions that we're, we're passing along that information. And, 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 and we may look at ways to do that in, in forums on various topics, uh, not, just, not just political candidates, but uh, uh, forums and such. Because uh, you know, there's, there's that, that back and forth and that the, the new digital age provides so many great opportunities for people to uh, – to get back and forth. I, w I would just urge people to try to expose yourself to the other views. And, and, and in the end, you may, your position may alter, it may not, but uh, I think you're better prepared to defend your position uh, if, you, if you know what the other side is saying uh, than you are just to, to, to listen to the people that agree with you. Uh, so I, you know, one thing that people walk away with that, you know, take that time to to read that article that you disagree with, and don't uh, stay in the echo chamber. Military and defense reporter Julia Bergman recently reported that Electric Boat had seen its workforce surpass 15,000 employees as they try to meet the demands of an expanded Navy. Electric Boat? Uh, recently surpassed 15,000 employees, uh, gearing up for what they presume to be a surge in um, submarine manufacturing? Yeah, so they've been uh, ramping up. They've been on a hiring spree um, for a little while now uh, in anticipation of a lot of work that they've gotten, uh, and it seems like they will continue to get as a result of um, some big Navy contracts. So uh, this 15,000 number, we sort of always knew they were going to hit it. Um, they're actually hoping to get to 18,000 employees by 2030. Uh, and initially, they said that they would have to hire about 14,000 to 15,000 people to do that, um, you know, combination of new jobs, but also they have a large, uh, they have an aging workforce, so there's going to be a large number of retirees um, leaving as well and people who leave for other reasons. So uh, now they're saying that um, they might have to hire between 15,000 and 20,000 people to reach that um, 18,000 number by 2030. Um, and that's all, um, you know, based on congressional support has been good 
in recent years for submarines um, and submarine construction. You know, the the Navy is now proposing that they would like a 355 ship. Um, they would like to have 355 ships. Um, President Donald Trump has um, proposed a 350 ship Navy. So that's sort of where the, the tide is going. And of course, more submarines under both of those scenarios. Um, and is Electric Boat uh, confident that they have the kind of recruitment pipeline and, and talent pipeline to, to fill these jobs? So basically what they said back in January, um, the president gives an annual address. And so what he said was that given the time and resources um, that they would be able to, you know, meet the Navy's demands. So that, you know, that would require um, training a lot of people, having the time to train a lot of people, um, uh, also expand their infrastructure. They're talking about uh, building a new um, construction facility for the 12 uh, of those new uh, ballistic missile submarines, and they're known as the Columbia class. So, um, you know, simultaneously, while they'll be b- building Virginia class attack submarines, uh, they want a separate facility where they can do construct work on construction for the Columbia class. And, and that will be in Groton as well? That'll be in Groton on the existing land on the waterfront there that they already own. They're not going to be... Um, as of you know, what they've said so far is that they're not going to be you know purchasing any more property or anything like that. They're going to do it within the existing infrastructure that they have. Um, and you reported that the electric boat, the company, is ready to is prepared to spend something like uh, 1.5 billion dollars to expand the facilities. So they actually are in the midst right now of the plan. I think it should be done um, you know sometime sometime soon. Um, so it's sort of a facilities master plan showing you know what how they would like the the waterfront to look. Um, so they they need to finish that up first. So it's just still a while away. Do we know how many jobs they've added uh, per year over the last couple of years, roughly? Um, so it's been a couple thousand of jobs, I would say, over the past couple of years. Um, just this first quarter of this year, they've hired uh, more than 800 people. Um, they're looking to hire about 2,000 employees this year. That's been kind of on par. It's a little bit more than in past years, but it's been you know about that number. So they're they're on track to meet 2,000 new new hires. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Typically, where does Electric Boat find um, recruits for for these jobs that they're they're that they're hiring for. So um, initially, they actually cast a pretty wide net. They were looking all over the country for candidates, and they found that that actually um, didn't help much with retention. They found that people often, um, maybe when they chose to have families, uh, move back to closer to home so that they could be, you know, um, closer to grandma or right, whatever. Right. Um, so they've since um, sort of narrowed that scope and have been looking mainly in the Northeast. People with roots in right, the area. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, and a number of programs have been set up training pipeline uh, there's been a training pipeline set up um, with uh, it's sort of a partnership between the um, community colleges some of the technical high schools uh, the Eastern Workforce Investment Board um, to train um, you know younger high school students but also career changers um, and people like that in specific trade disciplines that uh, Electric Boat will need because that's really where the hiring is going to be focused. It's going to be tradespeople. So uh, Grasso Tech, for example, in Groton has a welding program set up um, so that, uh, you know, the large percentage of the graduates from there have gone on to get conditional offers at EB and uh, in some cases gone on to, um, you know, work at EB uh, provided they pass background check and all that. Uh, Three Rivers? Is there a program at Three Rivers? Right, as well. There's a Three Rivers. So Um, electricians, welders, that kind of... Right. Uh, Machinists, there's a big one. Uh, Pipe fitters as well. So... um, and I, presumably there's been a, a good interest in, in those programs at Grasso Tech and, and um, 
Three Rivers. Yeah, definitely. I know for the uh, manufacturing pipeline, which covers a, a you know a, a few different trades, um, you know they're st- still going through a lot of applications. You know they're still bringing. Pe- there's just been a lot of interest, and they haven't even been able to get the number of people that they um, that have showed interest into the program. Into actually into the programs. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned uh, the Congressional Budget Office report uh, that uh, outlines challenges to meet the the demand. Right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Sure. So um, this the CBO report looked at uh, a number of different timelines for um, achieving that 355 ship navy. Um, it was I think 15 to do it in 15 years, 20, 25, and 30 years. Uh, and in the sh- the shortest of the timelines, a 15-year buildup, um, they pointed out a lot of, of issues that could occur. Um, you know, you're obviously going to be needing to train a large number of new employees, and that could lead to some production inefficiencies. Uh, the report po- points out, you know, like um, correcting work that wasn't done properly the first time, um, delays to schedules, um, you know, the potential for increased costs. So, um, you know, and there's, there's obviously going to have to be a large investment, and there's going to have to be, um, you know, as sort of I already said, it's going to have to be a, um, a real ramp up in hiring to, to sort of achieve this. I think it's important to point out that the, the report really highlights how unrealistic the 15-year timeline is, and I think that people in, um, you know, Congress would agree um, that that would be uh, incredibly difficult to achieve in that timeline, and we're probably looking at a longer timeline. The stopgap um budget was just passed. Um, what is in that um, for the ramp up of, of production for, for the Navy? Right. So uh, Congress just spent, uh, Congress just passed and uh, President Donald Trump just signed the $1 trillion spending bill that covers, um, that funds the government for the remainder of this fiscal year, which ends September 30th. Now that was pretty delayed, um, but they have gotten that done. And um, the funding in there for submarines is pretty consistent with um, previous years. There's uh, five billion, about five billion in there for two Virginia class submarines. There's uh, nearly another two billion for the Columbia program, um, and so it's it's likely. Um, that that type of support will continue as Congress is now working on the, the budget for the next fi- the next year. fiscal year. Yeah. Well, thanks for stopping by, Julia, and, and uh, please uh, keep us posted on the electric boat uh, hiring as as they continue to hire uh, from local programs uh, to meet the demand that the the proposed uh, military spending will will make. Will do, and uh, yeah, a lot more submarine talk in the future. Yeah, thank thanks. You. Martha Shanahan looked into multiple properties across 250 acres in Montville that have remained unoccupied since the early 2000s. Martha, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Uh, you were recently um, traipsing around Montville? Yeah. I, looking um, at some vacant buildings, uh, homes, right? Yeah, I did a little bit of off-roading um, <laughs> in my reporting. And it's what, can you <clears throat> describe the, the area of Montville that you were yeah, so wandering it's, around? Yeah, so it's about... it's almost 250 acres um and it's an area that i think a lot of people in montville might be familiar with um it's behind the saint bernard catholic school um along most of the and most of it is along um massapeague side road which is goes along the the thames river Mm. um and is sort of on the the Montville bank of the of the river on the other side from, uh, I think Ledger is on is on the other side up there. There so, are there are thirty seven individual properties that were part of the area that I'm writing about that this development company 
bought between about 2005 and 2008. For the purpose of, of developing the the pro, the, the, the yeah. all that area for commercial for yeah they were going to develop so they had they had a whole bunch of plans for it it was it was some there were a whole bunch of different LLCs and companies involved but they were working on behalf of a company a development company based in New York called Tarragon. Um, like the spice, um, and they had this vision that they told the um, that they told the town about in about 2005 or 2006 that they wanted to build a hotel, a golf course, um, some luxury condos. I think they were supposed to be luxury condos, particularly for um, older people. Um, stores, I believe, also a marina. Um, so one of the Issues is the the loss of of tax um, revenue mm. because there are some back taxes that haven't been paid on on the the tax collector told me that the owner hasn't paid any taxes on these properties since 2010 and um, owes a little bit more than a million dollars on those 37 um, properties collectively. Uh, he. Uh, is also in the process of being foreclosed on by the mortgage lenders. There are people living in the, this area. Some of them, yeah. 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 Along Massapequa Side Road, not so much. Um, there's for, for a part of it, there'll be a vacant home and then somebody living there and then another vacant home. And then there's a stretch where there is um, maybe a dozen or so properties that are vacant just all in a row. And what's their perspective? You talked to a few of them. It's interesting. People have sort of different perspectives on it. Um, the reason that I sort of started looking into these properties was and trying to figure out what was going on there was because um, some of there's there's a couple that lives on um, Dairy Hill Road uh, next to one of these properties. And it's it's sort of the only abandoned house in in their neighborhood, but they happen to live right next to it and have had issues with people squatting in it and have had, apparently there's deer hunters that will use it as a shelter. And um, last year, I think it was a, a last May, um, the their house actually got broken into. So at that, that was the point at which they were sort of were like, this is ridiculous. This is affecting our quality of life. So they, they reached out to me you know, they they don't love living next to abandoned houses because there's issues that come along with right. that. But it also, I mean, one guy was sort of like, I mean, it's quiet. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't have to deal with yeah. loud neighbors. What options does the, the the town have as far as these vacant lots? Uh, they they they're owed uh, taxes and obviously the the, the kind of blight uh, issue and 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 some of these residents that are are not happy about it. What options do they have? What are they doing? What, what What's in the in the future for this? Yeah. So in terms of the blight, I, I talked to the mayor of Mont, of Montville, Ron McDaniel, and he essentially said that you know they've when they've received complaints, they've occasionally gone and boarded up the houses. Um, there's not that he he says there's not that much they can do because they're the town's blight ordinances are fairly weak, and doesn't it doesn't allow the town to go on to these private properties and do anything about them just because they don't they look bad Mm um i they can probably do they can probably you know 
take control or take responsibility for problems if they're causing safety concerns, but not just because, you know, people don't like living next right. to an ugly falling apart house. This is obviously something that, you know, merits more more coverage, and I think it's something I'll be writing about again probably in the near future, um, depending on what happens and and who I hear from. Great. Well, thank you for your reporting, and thank you for stopping by uh, and uh, talking. Thank you.